0: Hi, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower not just ourselves, but each other. Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionizing the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So, you're ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com.
1: where I start to realize I got it wrong. This ladder that I'm climbing is not what I thought it would be. And fundamentally for me, it was a cancer diagnosis in 2006, where it shifted it, right? Because all of a sudden you move away from an environment with to-do lists, an environment with presenting, an environment with multitasking, an environment with delegating, and all of a sudden, you're sitting there in a hospital with that clock going tick, tick, tick. And you've got zero control. This week's
0: guest is well known within the real estate industry, whether that be as a coach, a speaker, podcast host, or thought leader within the Australian property market. He is also regarded as one of Sydney's leading auctioneers, and for many, He's recognized as the auctioneer who has in recent years represented the winning teams on the Channel 9 series, The Block. But what many may not know is that he's fought cancer not once, twice, but three times. In this episode, I get him to take off his real estate hat and delve into his story, his reflections, and as you'll hear, the powerful advice and learnings he unpacks really makes this conversation one not to be missed. He's a straight talker he cuts through the crap and over the years he's inspired me as I know he will you as you sit back and listen to this conversation with a legend of life Tom Panos Tom welcome to share
1: thank you thanks for having me Steve
0: Mate, we've known each other for a fair few years and I've watched your journey and been very inspired from your journey as well and your quotes and your outlook on life but probably one of the things that I really love is... You cut through the shit. You're a straight talker.
1: Yeah, I think deep down people want that. People fundamentally care about the truth more than the sugar-coated version, even though the natural feeling is, hey, I don't want tension and resistance, so it's better to just actually say something that is not going to be offensive. I think sometimes the truth is offensive. I think the truth is offensive. In real estate, if you think about it, you're telling someone who's who's going to get $1.2 million on their house because for them to they get $1.2, they can actually go off and buy their next house for $1.8, and you've got to actually say to them, hey, that's not going to happen, right? Yep. So it, it is, but at the end of the day, I think people do like to hear the truth.
0: Yeah, well, it's like that quote, isn't it? Everyone wants to hear the truth until you tell the truth, and then you're a prick.
1: Exactly. Yeah, well, that's that's what it is. But I, I think I had a guy that ended up leaving me when I was at News Corp. He just didn't like the work. And all the time he spent, Steve, was on websites. On He was obsessed with phishing, right? Phishing magazines, fishing on his websites, coming in around the the, the meeting room, All he'd be talking about on the weekend is where he went fishing, and he just never really cut it as a salesperson. And I said to him, I said, listen, if I were you, I'd plan the escape. And he goes, what do you mean by that? I said, plan the escape, your true essence, effortless, lucrative, and fun. If you owned a fishing tackle shop, you'd get in early, you'd work hard, you'd stay later, you'd be sitting there. Constantly researching what's the best product or service. People would ask you questions. You would feel like Mother Teresa to them, answering their their fishing questions. I said, "It's not happening for you." Selling real estate ads in the courier mail. It's as simple as that. And he got upset. He ended up leaving, and then he ran into me at an airport out of all places. And he said, "Tom, I want to thank you." And he goes, "Because you said to me the thing that I had didn't have the courage to do myself." He goes. I work at a fishing shop. i got an incredible guy. I bought into the business. It's been good for three years. I'm making about two and a half grand a week, which is more than I was making, working as a, as a salesperson selling print media. He says, had you not had that conversation with me, I may have still be working there. Hmm. Yeah. So it was about finding his passion. Correct. Finding your passion, finding your unique psychological fingerprint. We've all got one, Steve. I don't know if people that are listening to this on one of the podcast channels, they can't see what I'm doing, but I pulled out my thumb. It's got a thumbprint. This is the most unique thumbprint. That's why cops will actually get it, because they can distinguish you. Well, I'm letting you know, we've all got a psychological fingerprint on the inside. We're all different. I think the world has clocked off 8 billion people now, Steve. So there's 8 billion people that are unique individuals. You need to find the thing that is natural. It flows. You like it. You don't get bored of it. That's that's where you've got to be doubling down your time and energy, which is your well, sort of what you've sort of begun to do yourself in your own life, including this project here. It is meeting your creative needs and meeting the needs that you have. I would assume that you've got high values of making an impact on people. And reducing the suffering or improving people's lives, and, and you're able to achieve this through conversations with various people using a podcast. Yeah.
0: Well, it was one of the things that over a number of years as I went through those health battles was I thought my job defined me. I thought I'd been in this job, and I thought that was who I was. I was in the community. I was the real estate agent. I was the business owner. I was all these things, but then I worked out, well, actually, I'm me. I'm not a, a title. I'm a lot deeper than that and obviously that was an interesting journey to come along but since I found that out and since I've worked through that I've unlocked a lot about what I want to do as a person and and what impact I want to have on the world.
1: Yeah, you mentioned a word there title. Titles are interesting because when you have a title which is an external thing, it's a thing that's not within you. It's a title. You're the chief executive officer or you are the chief operating officer, whatever your title is, you can actually get into the position where it defines you. Now, here's the problem, Steve. The minute there's a restructure, the minute your boss doesn't like you, the minute the business gets bought out and you no longer have that title, right, you're you again. Who are you? Who are you? Because I can tell you, I have seen a lot of people, particularly through COVID, where there was a reset button, where they may have had their power and influence authority came from a positional title. They lose that title and they no longer are able to have their assistant to do that, or they're not able to walk in and say, we're all having a lunch, I'm paying it, I'm using the company's money they lose their power and their influence. And that's why I say, get your power and the influence on the inside. Don't make it an external thing because an external things are there today, but they're not there tomorrow or they change. So the bottom line is success is an inside job, not an outside job. Yeah. I love that.
0: Now, Tom, there's a few things I want to dive into during the episode today, but for me, since I've known you, I've seen kind of a a transition and a change of person over the years. And obviously there's, as you'll speak about, a reason for that. But tell me about who was Tom Panos and who is Tom
1: Panos now? Tom Panos, chapter one out of two chapters, and there will be more chapters to this book. So what I'm saying to you today is something that I might reflect on in five years time and say, that's how I was then. We're like milk and cheese. We've have expiry dates. We keep evolving, right? Serves a purpose. You move. The first version of Tom Panos is a guy that has been brought up in Canterbury Bankstown in Sydney, a socioeconomic area that is not high on the spectrum. You hear about murders and drugs. It is ground zero for a lot of the troubles to do with uh, drugs and gang wars. That was the area that I was brought up in. I never really participated in that but it was an area that that was where I went to school and they were the people I went with and they were my friends. But it was not something that I actually participated in. And my family, I had a, a dying desire to get rich, Steve. That was my desire because the insecurities and What were the shortfalls that I was having were building me up to want those things. So I had this thing in my head. If you make money, you have freedom and you can have the things that I was admiring, being someone that was coming from a poor family. So the first, I would say, part of my life after school was chase, hustle, hunger, long hours, grind, tension, suffering. Pay the price now, you'll get the rewards later. Pretty unhealthy life as well. I mean, I can't get over. You know, it's only when you leave a situation that you can look back and say, I actually did that. Steve, if you go to jail three years into jail, that's normal. It doesn't feel bad. You wake up at 5:30, you've got your roll call count, you sit down with everyone, you have your shower day one is hard, day two is easier. By around the first year, you've realized this is your life. And for me, it was stock standard. I ran two things at the one time. I had an executive role at News Corp and I was running real estate gym and conferences. So it was just, I, I can tell you, there have been times, Steve, in that 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 20-year period where I would be so stressed uptight, I would get out of a aeroplane and head to the hotel room and and then to sort of chill out, I would go to a movie on my own on a Tuesday. I still remember it at Crown at Melbourne i Crown, I've, it's a Tuesday and I've got off, sat down in a cinema and I've sat down and I've moved to take a seatbelt <laughs> thinking because I'm an automatic pilot. I mean, imagine how unmindful I'd become where I've sat down and I've gone like this and I remember thinking to myself, That's a stupid thing to do, Tom. Why would you actually do that in a cinema? But when you're running in habit mode without giving it any thought or intentions, everything is just like robotic, right? And that was the first part of life. The second part of life is where I start to realize I got it wrong. This ladder that I'm climbing is not what I thought it would be. And fundamentally for me, it was a cancer diagnosis in 2006 where it shifted it, right? Because all of a sudden, you move away from an environment with to-do lists, an environment with presenting, an environment with multitasking, an environment with delegating, and all of a sudden, you're sitting there in a hospital with that clock going tick, tick, tick and you've got zero control. You are in the hands of doctors, oncologists, nurses, social workers, they're coming and going, and you have zero control. And around you, you're seeing other people, and you can see some of the people you're there with, you know in your heart when you look at them, they look really sick. And you know that they're not the kind of people that are probably planning superannuation things, right? They are at the, let's call it the afternoon of life. That's where they're at, you know, the afternoon of life. And you change. And then for for me, the second half of life has been very, very different to the first half of life. And I'm I'm in that second half of life now, probably around, I don't know, five years into it.
0: And we were talking when we caught up for breakfast the other day around living a life by design. And we're talking about going with the flow, and you've got a bit of a different thought to that.
1: Yeah. So you've got to plan the escape. Only dead fish go with the flow, right? right? You've got to plan the escape, right? You've got to plan the escape. And what I mean, I don't mean the escape means that you leave here and you go live in a temple in India in silence. I'm talking about you plan the escape from where you are now to what you desire to be a life that meets your values. And for me, I think too many people, Steve, end up doing things that are shaped by other people around in their life. I mean, there's a wonderful novel. It's actually a mini. I call, I think I call it novella. The Death of Ivan Illich. It's a great novel to read, and I urge all your listeners to read it. It's a novel written many years ago about a guy who was, it starts with the end, Steve. So just picture the novel is about he's lying there, he's in his mid-40s, he's dying of a terminal illness, and in the other rooms he can hear the family have all got together, he's dying at home. He's a judge, and he's a pissed off judge. He's very pissed off, Steve. And the reason why, its, it's I want to repeat to people, it's called The Death of Ivan Illich. It's, one of, it's the absolute classic novels. And he's sitting there, and he's pissed off. And the reason he's pissed off is he's 45, and he's dying. And his wife comes in and holds his hand, and he looks at her, and he says, what if my life has been a lie? And what he's doing is in those final moments, he's recapping that he didn't want to be a solicitor, but his parents made him. He ended up studying law and started hanging out with other people that were becoming lawyers and they all settled down quickly and had kids. And that's not what he wanted to do. I think he he was obsessed with music. He wanted to be a musician. So this whole time is going on and he starts, his wife loves going out to the theater and play in a social light and he hates it. He just likes music, and he's watching his life, and then he realizes, shit, it's come to an end. I haven't lived my life, and it's actually, it's one of the few times, and I w- I don't normally cry on stuff that's not true. I want to cry on a documentary, right? You're probably a bit like me as well. You know, when it's real, like it impacts you. But this is the first time I cried reading a novel because I realized that I and many people end up living a life of regret, living a life because we were told this is what you should do. He didn't want to get married and settle down and have kids in his early 20s, right? But that's what all the other lawyers did. He didn't want to be going out to cocktail functions. He wanted to be doing his own thing, but he never had the guts to do it because he felt if I actually did it, I'm going against the approval of other people, you know? So I have a different view. My view is that You've got to think about a life because you want it to become E L F effortless, lucrative, and fun. And you are the only person that can make that happen. Yeah. Now, Tom, take
0: me back to what led to the first cancer diagnosis.
1: Listen, it's very simple. I was—I mean, I—I st- I still have the blue suit at home. I had, a, like you, I was a big boy, like you. I've transformed my weight. So I had this big blue suit. I was, I don't know, about 125 kilos. And I've got this blue suit that I think I've picked up from one of those shops. I don't know, Roger David, cheap blue suits. I still remember it. I went into a GP. The GP was a bit anxious because I could tell he wanted me to go get an x-ray done that day. I get the x-ray done. I go see him right after the x-ray and he looks at it. And all I could see him move at lightning speed on the phone. And that's the first. My, I mean, I can read the play. When you've got a GP ringing people up left, right, and center, and then eventually he gets onto a guy and he uh, says, oh, I need you to, to to go get this CAT scan. And it's a full-body CAT scan. And I need you to go see this um, doctor. And that was all like, I mean, Mate, I, had spe- I told you the other day, I had a specialist appointment that, you know, they were talking about a year to get in. Not this day. On this day, Steve, this guy got me into a specialist appointment at two o'clock on the same day. That's amazing, but that's damn scary because any person that's got half a brain knows the fact that this guy is making things happen so quickly, there's a problem, and it was. Got diagnosed with stage four B cell lymphatic cancer. And my life, it's a bit like the Bible, before and after, before Christ, after Christ. For me, it's before cancer, after cancer, two different lives. You know, I got diagnosed, I struggled with it, but fortunately, I've got no evidence of disease. It's been a hard battle, three cancer diagnosis, 17 years, lots of chemo, lots of radiation, lots of drugs, poison to kill the poison in my body, and it's worked. It's been a gift that's been badly wrapped for me, Steve. Yeah. The reason why, me. like a lot of people would have known me in the first part of my life, aggressive, dismissive, abrupt, get to the point. You're being lazy if you don't do that. I'm quite different now. I, I understand that people have pain and suffering in their lives because I was exposed to it. That's one of the beautiful things about suffering. When you suffer, you feel the suffering of another person and that makes you a more empathetic person. Now, whether it's a cancer illness or it's a a suicide like Matt Steinway's son, or whether it's the death of uh, Angelo from Harris Real Estate, who was a close client and friend of mine, it helps me understand that there is more to life than commissions and vendor paid marketing, that people are suffering, that people have Every day, you've gone through your own suffering, Steve. You know, one of the advantages of suffering is it allows you to understand the people might smile, people might appear good on the outside, but you don't know what really is going on behind their uh, four walls and their roof at home, you know? Yep.
0: So through, through your cancer diagnosis, through your chemo and the treatments that you had, you obviously had a lot of time for reflection. Mm.
1: A lot of time for reflection. The reason why you get a lot of time for reflection is that you're faced with mortality, and it's something that people should actually think more about. I mean, no one on this planet, Steve, has not died. So if you Google it, everyone dies. But when you're in your 20s and your 30s and even to your 40s, You don't actually think about it. You think that there is an endless number of tomorrows. You think that tomorrows never run out, all right? And then all of a sudden, you, you get this punch in the face, this diagnosis, and then you've got time to realize time is running out. Time is running out. So you go through a lot of the things. You reflect. And a lot of the reflection, Steve, actually happens in the chemo ward. Because I'd get, I'd get in there at 9.30 and I would leave no sooner than 6 p.m. It was always a full day. And you're just sitting there in a chair and the chemo's coming through a catheter up your arm and you look around and you're reflecting because you understand the day is coming. You don't know when, but you know it's coming. And what it does, it allows you to start thinking about what do I want the next chapter of my life to look like whether it's the final chapter or it's just one that was a speed hump for me it's been a for me it's been a speed hump three times and then you move forward again. So you'd spend a lot of time reflecting and the things that you reflect on, a lot of the stuff that I reflected on came from a book The Five Regrets of Dying. It was written by a palliative care nurse, an Aussie by the way. So what she did is an incredible project. She worked at a palliative care unit where people have got one to two weeks to die. Some are older people, most were, some are younger. And Steve, what she did, this author, this palliative care hospice nurse, is she did a book called The Five Regrets of Dying and she was taking notes while she was looking after patients and she would ask them, what have you learnt in your life? What are the regrets you've had in your life? Because incredible wisdom comes, Steve, in the final moments of life. It's like the ego has gone. There is nothing more to prove. It is one of actually, and I saw this with my own brother, because I, I sort of was next of kin to my young brother who died five years ago, and I saw it in the last two, three weeks, what actually immerses. And what she studied is that, and this is what I reflect on answering your question, you start reflecting, what's the purpose of my life? What really do I want out of it? And she studied that a lot of people, in the end, there was hundreds of patients she interviewed. And in summary, there's a handful of things that were common denominators. They were, they regretted that they cut ties with friends. So just picture everyone listening to this. These are people in their final days of life being asked questions by a palliative care nurse who's been very connected with them in their final stages. And she has sussed out these common denominators. They regret not having friendships and losing connection with a lot of the people through their life. They regretted that. They regretted working too hard, believe it or not. That was one of them. They regretted not taking more holidays because often they said that was the time that they connected with their loved ones the most. Mm. They regretted not standing up for what they believed but succumbing to the popularity contest of others, of what they wanted. So never standing up for who you were. And for me, I, I sort of dwelled on a lot of those things. And the one of the things that I've dwelled on, which has had a big impact in my life, is who will cry when you die? Hmm. Who will cry when you die? It's a great question to ask because, Steve, there'll be 300 people coming to the funeral. But let's be clear. There'll be 50 at a comedy store the next night and there'll be another 100 that are in Hawaii holidaying or in Bali or some other place the following week. But there'll usually be one or two people at home grieving. They're the indicators of who you should treat really good in your life, who will cry when you die. And for me, it's manifested in trying to be more of a family person. I've been married for uh, over 30 years. I've got two daughters at my uh, second home as we're doing this, Byron Bay, because I bring my whole family. We're connected together, right? There, There are a lot of the things that I've reflected on, and I've also reflected on the fact that I got fallen into this bullshit story that I thought the world revolved around real estate and real estate agents. We are such a small Speck of sand in the whole world of what we do. You know, we sit there and we think the whole world revolves around you know appraisals, listing, sales. The truth of the matter is, we're human beings. That may work in real estate. We might be mortgage brokers, but we're human beings first, and we're our job second. Mm. It's been great. It's been uh, it's been a a fantastic thing. I wish I didn't have to take all those the poison that I've taken but it served a purpose. And you're still here. And I'm still here. And I'm still here. If I'm ever feeling bad, I keep remembering what my oncologist, Dr. Stephen Larson says, Tom, there are thousands that would swap spots with you in an instant. You know that. There's some guy that's caught pancreatic cancer that's got months that would say, I want to be Tom Panos. Be happy being Tom Panos.
0: Tom, tell me about mentally, you had to be strong through this, right? Because they say, and I've heard it a lot of the time, going through a cancer diagnosis. Now, when you got that diagnosis, whether it was at two o'clock in in the oncologist's uh, office, the specialist's office, when you got that, you kind of had two choices, didn't you? Sit there and go, oh, well, it's been my life to now, or mentally go, I'm going to get through this.
1: Yeah. I remember a thing. Uh, my oncologist said once. He said, "Tom, the body's amazing. It can endure most things. It's the mind we've got to worry about." And I said, "What do you mean by that?" He says, "You'll be shocked. Cancer medications. Your body is extremely resilient. It's it's your mind. You're going to have to sit there and." and 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 take control over. So Steve, mental toughness, it's an interesting one. Because what I've learned is often the people that act the bravest on the outside are the weakest on the inside. And often the person you least expect is the person that is grounded, that handles the drama so much better. If you go, if you're on an aeroplane, right? And particularly if it's an international flight, traveling for hours and hours through oceans and it's dark in the middle of the night, and a plane starts hitting turbulence, right? Just incredible turbulence. And people are flying through there and they're screaming. And the flight attendant says, all passengers, please to their seats, seat belts fastened. If you're ever in one of those situations, you look around, you'll see there'll be three kinds of people. The first type are the drama queens that carry on. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. They're screaming, carrying on. And you can understand that in that environment. The second group of people, often you feel they put their head down and they're just sitting there. They're just hoping the problem goes away. Let's just hoping, go, I don't want to think about this. There's a third group, which I call the leaders on the plane. They're the pacifiers. They're the ones that bring calm. Some would say, are they mentally tough? No, I just think they've got the ability to see things as they are, not worse or not better. They're the kind of person, Steve, that looks around at their fellow passenger and says, In five minutes, it's all going to be fine. We're just going through some turbulence. Trust me, it happens on most of the flights and it relaxes the person. They're the person that sits there and they're just calm and they'll smile and say, It's all good. It was like this on the way here, too. It'll be finished in five minutes, right? To me, is that mental toughness? What is it? I think I'd love to share a wonderful book. I shared one with you the other day, but there's another book since we're talking about mental toughness. It's written by a young girl called, uh, she's a doctor, Amy Moran. She did an incredible TED Talk, been seen by millions and millions. It's called What Mentally Strong People Don't Do. In fact, sorry, the title is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I would urge all your listeners to pick up this two-hour read and jump into it it's transformational. She had her own suffering. She came home one day, tragic news. Her partner in their 20s had died in front of her, and she was just trying to pick up the pieces. She was down, out, devastated, saw no future, and started studying about how to become mentally tough. And She wrote this book, and some of those 13 things are things that are pivotal for me. Touch on one or two of them. Never compare yourself to other people embrace change never make a a bad day a bad year i'd i'd love to let your listeners embrace that two hour book or if you're a shit reader just go watch the ted talk it'll go for 20 minutes
0: now tom the main reason for me going through my journey and kind of launching this podcast is i suppose one of the things i've always and as an aspiring life coach as well one of the things i really struggle with is why in life does it take that we go through trauma or an event or a diagnosis as in your case and in other people's cases why do we then go let's change now let's change our life now and the reason i really wanted to have you on the podcast is because i know you've got a great story and we could we could stop the podcast now and we're done it's absolute gold what you've just delivered And it is that before cancer, after cancer, but I'd love people to be listening to this and learning and going, hang on, I don't have a diagnosis today. Or maybe I do, or or there is an event or something, but maybe you're traveling through life, you're researching fishing at News Corp, right? Or whatever it is. And you just sit there and go, what can I take from this? What is Tom telling me here? What is one thing that I can change today that can set me on a different course? And that's why I've launched this podcast because I want people to be able to learn from others' mistakes, others' journey, their story, what's happened to them, because those things may happen to them in the future, but if they learn now and make changes now, they will be set up better for the future.
1: Mm. It's a very noble thing you're doing. You're trying to actually, in some ways, what you're trying to do is trying to help someone taste what chocolate tastes like without having never eaten. If you think about it, what you're trying to do is to give someone the lesson without actually have done the time. And I get that, and it's something I grappled with too, Steve, because. I would look at the people around me and I would think to myself, if only they could understand that it's inevitable that they're going to cop a punch in the face at some point. And if it's not a bad diagnosis, it's the loss of a loved one. And if it's not the loss of a loved one, it's being betrayed by your partner. And if it's not that, it's a medical mental health issue that just starts coming upon you. Or if it's not that, It's a relationship breakdown with your best mate. Or if it's not that, it's a financial problem that knocks you and your family off your feet. So, all I'm saying is, it's inevitable that in your lifetime, you'll cop that punch in the face. And what you're saying is, what can you do before you cop the punch in the face or to prepare yourself for the punch in the face? And here's my view. Firstly, I totally get it. It's very difficult to explain what chocolates taste like unless you've eaten it. I understand that. Secondly, I want to let you know that the more you put yourself in the situation, that's why I say to people, don't be afraid of going to a graveyard and spending time there. It's important to understand where next stop is going to be. It affects the way that you live your life. You might You you know, there's a great saying, what you resist will persist, what you befriend you'll transcend. Embrace it, accept it, accept mortality. So I'm trying to get specific about answering your question, which I think is, I think what you're saying is, well, tell me, are you saying how can you you learn from it without going through it? Yeah.
0: I'm not trying to take the experience away because... Everyone's experience will be different. But why does it take an event or a trauma or something like that for us to then change? One of the key things, and I said to you the other day as well, is that when you talk about your cancer and a doctor said to you, you're better off being healthy, going into a cancer diagnosis than overweight, unfit, and your body full of inflammation, because which do you want to be? So. Get fit and healthy now because, it, as you say, there's going to be a black swan event, as Dr. Fred Gross talks about. There's going to be a black swan event that's going to hit you. And if it is a cancer diagnosis or something of the health, if you are healthy, well, you're going to be able to tackle that a lot better. And you're probably going to be able to bounce back from it a lot better than someone that just doesn't have the capacity.
1: 100%. 100%. Yeah. So here's the reason. Why, when you actually cop the punch in the face, a lot of the times it creates change. Why? Because it was a much better lesson, because the lesson hurt a lot. It was a really great lesson it taught you. What for me, it was, hang on a second, Tom, that cigarette, those things you were putting into your mouth. Those days that you are waking up at 10 o'clock, not seven o'clock, those days that you press the snooze button instead of going and doing some exercise, those days that you chose the bacon and egg roll instead of the smoked salmon on poached eggs on rye, they have an impact. This is what they've caused you. I think what it is, is when it hurts a lot, the lesson sinks in because it's really, listen, it's really, really hard to tell someone that's 21, 22, with their parents are living healthy lives and their grandparents are 95, 100, there's been no death in their family. It's really hard to convey that to that person. Just, just like in the same way, Steve, it's very hard for me to tell to teach a real estate agent, hey, listen, do this stuff here or you won't eat. If I say that to someone who's a trust fund kid that's got a lot of money, he's going to think, well, that's okay. I won't do it and I'll still eat. So I think the real issue is the more it hurts, the bigger the lesson is. However, if you put yourself in situations, like for instance, I do this with sometime with clients. I'll meet them at a cafe at Missenden Road in Camperdown. And if I feel like I haven't really hit home hard, the last 10 minutes, I'll say to him, let's walk and talk. And I walk into RPA Lifehouse and I'll walk into the chemo ward, which we can do now post COVID. There's no, you can walk in there. No one knows. Like you're visiting people. There's no screening and nothing. And I'll walk in and I'll say, brother, you came in to see me today for this coaching session. Mm and I asked you out of 10, 10 being the worst, how bad your problem was. And you told me that you dropped your income by 75 grand and that you were devastated. And you gave me a score of eight out of 10 being how bad the problem was. I said, you've spent two minutes in the chemo ward now looking around at these people. Can you give me the new score of your problem? Often, Perspective and exposure to darkness can shape people's mindset. So, I think even if you don't go through it, if you get close to it, or if you're a carer of someone, I think uh, you can get a significant benefit out of that and not have to go through the total experience yourself. But on that point, Steve, I know I'm not stupid, I'm 57 years of age. I've had cancer three times. I haven't met anyone in my life that's had more chemo and radiation than me. I've never met anyone. And my doctor says to me, he doesn't know of any people with my diagnosis that are alive still today with my diagnosis. And I know in my heart that the treatment has been part of it, but I've done my bit too, Steve. I've done my bit. I'm talking about a guy that's transformed himself. Mentally, physically, spiritually, right? I'm talking about a guy. Hey, I'm not waking up at 2.30 like that guy, Wahlberg. He owns a burger joint. Here. What is, you know the guy, Mark? Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg. Yeah, I, was, I, was, man, I saw it on Instagram yesterday. Schedule, I don't know if you've seen his schedule. 2.30, wake up, pray from 2.30 to 3.15. 315 has his first training session, it goes through. And then he's, I'm uh, Hey, I'm not like that, but I'm, I've, I've paid the price. I go to bed early. I exercise every day. I make better choices with my food. I spend time with people that energize me. I pray. It's a form of therapy for me. So I do, I do I'm doing my bit as well. And I think what helped a lot is my oncologist telling me about. Lance Armstrong, many years ago, he'd written a book, It's Not About the Bike, or something like And this guy was down and out and finished, and he said to me, Tom, the reason why Lance Armstrong is still alive is he was so fit that we were able to give treatment to a guy, not himself, but the medical fraternity, to a guy, and he could sustain it. You couldn't do that to someone that's unfit. You couldn't do it to an older, fragile person. So he says, your best bet is get yourself into supreme fitness. Because if you do get a relapse, guess what? We've got something that can sort it out. But we need you to know your body's going to have to be able to handle both the cancer and the poison at the same time. So you better get yourself supremely fit. And that to me is one of the main reasons why I'm alive with no evidence of disease today in January 2024.
0: Yep, and that section right there is absolute gold for for everyone out there is to focus on your health and your fitness because when something comes along, you wanna be in the best shape of your life to take it. I look at the fighters, the MMA fighters, the boxers. Sometimes they don't box or fight for one, two, three years but they are getting up every morning and they're ready. And sometimes a fight will come at the last minute and they'll jump in in two weeks. They're ready to go. They're not like, oh, I've got a fight now. I've got, I need six months preparation. They are always ready to go. And I think that's the same way you look at life. Yeah. If you're working on things, when you get that call that says, hey, you've got a fight, you're up for it.
1: You're absolutely spot on, Steve. I noticed it. And I also noticed the opposite of that is you see it a lot of the times with footy players. They look like absolutely jacked when they're playing. And then you watch them five years later, 140 kilos on the windfield blue, drinking it up. And then you see other people that you see. I saw Conor McGregor on a TikTok video. And I thought to myself, this guy here, mate, he could actually fight tomorrow again. This guy here is ready. This guy here, uh, yeah, he has, hasn't looked like he's fought for a while. And I just saw him on this TikTok. This guy was absolutely ripped. So uh yeah. So for me, in all the training I do and one-on-one with real estate agents, as far as I'm concerned, it all begins with the foundation block. If they're not sleep eating, sleeping well, eating well, exercising, I can't work with those people because I understand at the end of the day you don't have to be good. You've just got to be there. How can you be there if those three things aren't there, right? You need those three things. You've got to be bringing the best version of yourself. How do you do that? Eat well, sleep well, exercise well. They're non-negotiable, those three things. And I can tell you, I have so many clients. I told you when we were having breakfast last week, there's a very high incidence of people that show up to coaching, both business coaching and life coaching, that have got mental health issues. And often they come to coaching because they mask it and say, there's nothing wrong. I don't need to see a psychiatrist. I just need a coach on my side. Some people think it's trendy. I I I often hear people, oh, mate, that guy's my coach. They see it as there, right? But my lecturer, Anthony Grant, who unfortunately passed away at a young age, said, Tom, be very mindful. Around a third of people that show up for coaching do have a mental health issue component, I'm very mindful of that. And I've got to say, I often refer them to mental health professionals, people that have you know had medical training to, to handle it. But I'll also say to them, I've never, ever met a person that didn't get better by start doing running and exercising on a daily basis. And if you look at all the research on anxiety, depression, and many of the mental health issues, I'm going to take schizophrenia and put that aside because that's a far more... Deeper mental health issue. But if we're talking about depression and anxiety, the research is clear when you add medication to cardio, you get a significantly better result than medication alone. Exercise seems to be something that takes away the sharpness of a lot of the mental health issues. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, and I agree. You know, I do wellness, well being. We were talking about cold plunge the other day and sauna and steam and. I know that if I don't exercise in the morning, I'm not great for the day. Even from a fatigue perspective, that's funny with fatigue because fatigue you think, oh, you got to rest. You don't. You actually exercise, your fatigue yeah. is better.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's managing that balance. 100%. You're absolutely spot on. You're spot- I'm, I'm having my second. So I've trained this morning. After we have this, I'm actually going for a second session because my daughter, Madeline, wants to go to social remedy, the gym in Byron Bay, and I'm going back there for a second session. I think if you could get exercise, put it in a bottle, it would sell far more than AstraZeneca or Pfizer did with their... If you could get exercise, put it in a bottle, that would sell for millions of dollars. Yep. Yep. I agree.
0: Now, Tom you've obviously had a good relationship with Byron
1: Bay region
0: for a, a number of years now spending a bit of time down there over christmas and new year myself and owning a property now in the the northern rivers northern new south wales the interesting thing for me is that i was sitting there the other day grabbing my coffee at jimmy's at at suffolk park there coffee van and i was listening to some of the conversations going on and i got a got into a conversation with a guy and it really made me think. Down there, and in life, you choose your own reality. And I'll, I'll share a quick story where I was actually driving into Byron one day, and and there was a hitchhiker, and he was actually dressed really quite nicely. And I thought, I've never picked up a hitchhiker in my life, but I picked picked the guy up. I pulled over. I had no one in the car, so I pulled over, and he jumped in and got chatting to him. And I said, Oh, so you're just up here on holidays or whatever it is? And he said, No. No, I've been traveling for 10 years just with my backpack. And I said, what caused that? And he said, I was in corporate life. And he said, I just worked out that the government's against me. This is against me. They're doing stuff in the, the sky. They're doing stuff here. They're doing stuff, all conspiracy stuff, right? But he just lives out of his backpack. Now he lives on very little money, but his reality is completely different to someone that's in the city. And then there's the guy I was chatting to at the coffee van who gets up each morning, goes for a surf, hits the ocean, catches up with a few friends, does a few side jobs to earn a little bit of money, goes surfing again in the afternoon, and that's his life. Some people would say, what kind of life is that? But for him, he loves it. Different people, and and we all choose our
1: own reality. Well, let's be honest, Steve. There's a group of people out there in the corporate world who are grinding it out with the view of having his life when it's finished. That's what they're striving for. They just haven't realised it, right? What they're striving for is, hey, I'd be, I'd love to be able to get up, have a surf, hang out with mates. This is what they're aspiring to, but they have a thing in their head. I can only get there if I have a, you know, all this money. I think. Money's an interesting thing. It's like telephone numbers, man. I, and I've got to tell you, the relationship we have with money is an interesting one because it can be harmful or it can be helpful. So I've got a view that money doesn't get rid of problems. It helps you get to your problems with style and dignity. I'm not against money. I think that often people, and I put a post up on social media yesterday, there's a, a large group of people that are spending time. And lots of energy and lots of brain calories, and they're spending their life away working a job that they don't love, that they might not even like. And they're working and grinding and hustling to make money, to buy things that deep down they don't even want those things. But what they want is the acknowledgement of others that they've got those things. And the irony of it is, Often it's people that they don't even like, they don't even value. And then when they sit back and they think, what the hell am I doing participating in that stupid game? And then you sit back and you say, what's going to make you happy? Mate, jumping in the ocean, being with my loved ones, playing pickleball or golf, whatever you're into. We'll go off and do more of that. Byron Bay's a... Been, uh, I've had a relationship with Byron Bay for uh, a very long time. I was I was at school when me and my brother got on a train and left Sydney and came to Byron Bay and spent a few weeks, and I thought to myself, this is good. No one cares whether you've got thongs on or not. This is good. No one is actually judging you. This is good. People smile are always happy, and I thought to myself, this has got to be a part of my life. And it is a big part of my life. I probably, I'm not retired. I have uh, no intention to be retired. I've tried that. I don't, I don't work well having a lot of free time and doing nothing. But I've learned to be a life work integrator, not a life work segmenter. And that's a very, very big philosophy that people need to embrace. Are you the sort of person that is like the fireman? I put in my eight hours work. I come home. I take my fire uniform off. I have a shower. I don't want to think about work. Don't want to think about it. That's the life work segmenter. They have two things that are separate. I'm a life work integrator. They balance. I don't mind doing this with you and in half an hour being in the ocean and then being back having a a coaching conversation or uh, attending a meeting with with a client. I don't mind it. I don't mind having to make calls at six thirty at night because that's the time it suits people in Dubai. And then the next day at eleven o'clock in the middle of the day, which my people think is prime time, I'm doing something for myself, you know, mm. getting a massage. i don't I don't mind that. and Byron Bay allows you, because it's got a cohort of people that think that way, it allows you to actually be tuned and work in that operating rhythm.
0: You said earlier on in the conversation today around success and what you were chasing, the hustle and the grind, but tell me what defines success for you daily these
1: days? Okay. So for me, success daily is I need certain needs met. I have unmet needs and I need those needs met. One of those needs is I need to change the physiology and chemistry of my body on a daily basis. And that means exercise, which we've spoken about. I also have this underlying need. I have this underlying need where I need to feel like I help this situation get better. It still might be shit, but it's less shit. Or I help this person go from good to great or from bad to neutral. In any way you look at it, all I'm trying to do is to make an impact while I'm making an income. So I highly value. That's a thing that's in my currency. We all have currency drivers. You know, some people, some people's currency is there's a there's a group of guys or girls, particularly a lot of the younger guys, they've got this currency in their head, I need to be jacked and ripped. If I'm ripped, I'm happy. There's another group of people. I need to be number one. I want people to know that I am the number one. Their currency is acknowledgement from others. I am or she is the king or queen. So we all have different values. So what defines success to me is to find the values that are your big drivers, and then once you're aware of them and you know them, that you live your life in accordance with those values. That's when there's no tension. That's when it's seamless. That's when it's linear. That's when it feels right. So you do have to identify what your values are. We have, let me think of examples. Steinway's an example because he's out there, right? So Steinway, he's got a very high value of fitness and frequency. His value is energy. Everything's got to do with energy. Then you've got a person that lives three doors up the road from me here in Byron. They've got a value. We must make things better for people in the northern rivers that are going through a hard time. That's their value. So we all have different currencies that drive us. We, everyone, everyone thinks that it's all about money. Even a guy that looks like it's all about money Is it's not. It's often, I want to be on the stage known as the king of real estate. It's not money, it's acknowledgement from peers. For me, success is making sure that your unmet needs, which are your values, are met on a consistent basis. For me, it's impact. For me, it's community, which I never thought it would be, but I operate a lot better. Knowing that there's a village of people that we all have purposes, and that it'd be an absolute tragedy for me not to be given the God given abilities that I've been given and to not use them. And that's why I don't just sit at home watching Netflix, doing nothing. I don't have to. I don't, I don't, I don't I'm not saying it to boast. I don't, money is, I, I cannot run out of money. I made wise decisions in my earlier part of my life. I cannot run out of money, but I am going to run out of time. I know that. I'm going to run out of time. I hope it's not this decade. What if it happened next decade, 2024? Nah, I hope it doesn't happen next decade. I hope I've got another 20 years actually, 57, 67, 77. Listen, I know that sounds pretty negative for a lot of people, but when you're 35 and you were told that you had a 90% chance that you'd be dead within five years, that means that you would have been dead under 40. Going to 77, 80 years of age, is not a bad number for me because I reckon, I reckon the last two decades are probably less fun. Right. <laughs> You've got your grandkids and all that sort of stuff, but you're probably spending a heap of time getting x-rays done and seeing doctors as well, I would assume. Yeah.
0: Tom, can I ask you one final
1: question? Who's been your greatest teacher in your life? One of the things that, in answering it, I don't want in any way to make other people that have been good teachers in my life feel like they're not valued in this response, right? I'm mindful, right? And I'm going through it. But I'd have to say from a distance, it's been a guy by the name of Dr. Jordan Peterson. I've never met the guy. I often feel like I have breakfast with him when I'm sitting down listening to a podcast while I'm at the Sustainable Bakery in Byron or at Byronian and I'm listening to him and I feel like he's talking to me. I think Dr. Jordan Peterson, he's an intellectual psychologist, professor, and he has a philosophy in life. I think he's misunderstood often. I think he's had a significant impact. And if anyone would like to get a taste of why I've said that, a very good starting point would be to read or listen to the book, 12 Rules for Life. They're 12 simple philosophies. Have you heard of that book, Steve? And heard of... Uh, I have, yeah. I'd prob- I would probably say him, but... I believe that we have a lot of virtual mentors from afar. They are people that we might not interact with actually one-on-one, but we watch and think how they operate. I learn a lot from a distance from Elon Musk. I learn a lot from a distance and also close up. John McGrath's been a very, John's been a very close friend of mine for the whole cancer journey. John John McGrath was the person I was with when I got my phone call in 2006 to tell me that I was cancer free, when it was not supposed to go that way. And he's been a bit of a good luck charm. So John's been uh, extremely important for me in my life. But all I can say to you is, you never know the person, the book, the podcast. Maybe it's this one. Maybe it's this episode of Stevens podcast that impacts someone you don't know what you'll consume and how you'll consume it and who you'll consume it from that will change your life for me a very simple one line once in my mid 30s in treatment when someone said tom you know what you know but are you doing what you know mm. and that was a profound lesson for me
0: tom I'm really grateful for your time today.
1: I will let you go and jump in the ocean. Good questions by the way, makes makes me think about things and thinking is a good thing.
0: Yeah, and I thought this was a good opportunity. A lot of people know you from real estate gym, from auctioneering, the block. And we could have spoken about a lot more other things in this, but for me, I really wanted to focus on your journey and some of the lessons and the secrets that had come from that to kind of inspire other people to Make other people think a little bit. I am extremely grateful, as I say, for what you've shared today, your time. And I know for me, if just one person listens to an episode, if just one person takes one thing away from an episode, I'm happy. That's my metric. When I first set up the podcast, people'd say to me, Oh, how many downloads do you want? And how many listeners? And how many subscribers? And all these kind of things. And I said, it's not about that for me it's about just one person because at the end of the day when i say just one person i know my mum's going to listen she's my biggest fan so i I was always going to succeed but the good thing about it is that i know as you just said there people will change when they consume something and this podcast isn't for everyone but it's for someone and for whoever's listening, they would have taken, and I know lots of people are going to take a lot away from this episode, and implement some changes. Now, Tom, if people want to reach out to you for some more of your content, um, or touch base with you, what's the best way?
1: Tom Panos on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok is probably the best way, and YouTube. So yeah, and if you're a real estate person, you go to Real Estate Gym. But it's been an absolute pleasure, and. I can tell there's no commission breath in your approach. I can tell, Steve, what you're doing is doing something from the heart more than the brain. It's not underpinned by downloads and sponsorship and money. It's underpinned by I've suffered. I want to do something with my life. I want to make it better for other people. And... Even if it's one person, I'll tell you something that's fascinating. One person, we all think that we operate in silos, but that one person that you're talking about, if it's only one, I doubt if it's one, it'll be more than one. But that one person knows a hundred people who knows a hundred people who knows a hundred people. So the truth of the matter is don't think for a moment the impact you do on a person is, is, is small. You impact millions of people because we are all connected like neurons, like that chemical neuron. That person's connected to there, it's connected to there, connected to there. So uh, keep up the good work and, and I wish you all the best in 2024 and all your listeners.
0: I really appreciate it, Tom. And I'm going to leave with one quote that really helped me get through that you said many, many times. Difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations.
1: Yeah. Well said.
0: All right. Enjoy the swim. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tom.
1: Thanks for tuning in to
0: today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend, maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.